Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM Radio Free Lexington. Hello, you are listening to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL Lexington. My name is David Cole, your host, as ever, here with board runner extraordinaire, Brian Connors Mackey, and our guest this week, first guest, thank you for coming on the show, sure. Professor Bird. Mm-hmm. So, let's get things started. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about what do you do here at the University of Kentucky? So, I am in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, or MCLLC for short, Um, and I am the Director of Beginning German. So, I oversee the language program from 101 to 201, and... I also train our new graduate student instructors, so um, the TA coordinator, they call that. And Mm -hmm. so I uh, meet with them weekly for each. um, So the 101 instructors, 102 instructors, 201 instructors. I also teach pedagogy, and so right now I'm teaching uh, a class um, on how to teach language, and the students in there are graduate students in German, French, and Spanish. And I trade that class off with a colleague of mine, Alan Brown, in Spanish, and so we, every, every year or every two years, we um, we switch. But we train basically. You know, what is it? What does it mean to teach a language? How do you teach a language differently than something else? What are the best ways? Uh, what's the history of teaching languages? Um, and then the, the graduate students work on professional development, how to put together a CV, a teaching portfolio, et cetera, et cetera, and. Then I have some pedagogy seminars also with uh, our German students where I lead them through current research topics on teaching foreign languages at the college level. And their second year they do a research project um, where they have to do some kind of group or individual. As usually group, they start off with group. And then they present that at a conference and then write a paper. I also, I teach a bunch of stuff. I've taken over a class the last couple of years, Germanic mythology. A colleague of mine uh, retired, and they thought I would be the best suited for this because I have a background in ancient Germanic languages, one of which is Old Norse, um, which is the Viking language. And so um, I have changed the Germanic mythology course to focus more on Thor and Loki, and the medieval Icelandic stories rather than just, say, Wagner. Mm-hmm. I also teach some different linguistics courses, not if within the linguistics program, but actually we have a, a course called MCL 100, and it's the world of language. And it is an intro UK core course, and it's basically um, a more culture, language, student-oriented Linguistics course, and so we talk about things like dialects and and uh, registers and social sociolinguistics and um, youth speech and how do you teach a 
second language, how do you learn a second language, et cetera, et cetera, in translatability, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And let me think. So yeah, the, I teach I teach a bunch of various things, and then also German classes. Sometimes I teach upper division German classes too. So makes sense. That's sounds well, like you're not busy, really. Yeah. No. <laughs> We're glad that you Never. had enough free time to come on the show. Yeah, actually, it's it's kind of silly. My husband and I, I, I always teach for free. I always take on these independent study classes just because I have great students that want to do something. And I'm like, okay. So um, I'm doing an independent study next semester with my husband. We're co-teaching a course on Old Norse because I've had, I'm one of the few people who has had five years of Old Norse with my uh, previous professor at UCLA. And uh and I've had students who've been requesting it, so we're actually, I'm going to do the language part, and he, my husband's in linguistics, and he is going to be doing the Indo-European linguistics part of how, to, how does Old Norse fit into all of the Indo-European languages, so that's going to be fun. We already have 10 students in the whole Jesus. <laughs> so are you teaching that, like, it's a, a language learning course to learn to speak mm-hmm. Old Norse? Mm-hmm. I, I, um, my professor at UCLA, Jesse Bayak, um, when I was there... He had this book. He wanted it to be basically the Wheelock. If you know, if you've taken Latin, not at UK because they don't do it here. Wheelock was the first Latin book that was really accessible and actually focused on, you know, it would have fun little exercises in it and relate it to modern culture. And so that's what this book was. And I, some of the exercises in this book are some that I actually created as a student in his classes. Mm. And uh, we all, that was our homework. We'd have to come up with an exercise and we'd have to put that into the so that's yeah I'm, I'm actually excited to see it for the first time as a as a published book he just it came on the market I think two years ago and I have all of the different versions from every single time I I took a version of that class and so yeah we're going to be teaching Viking language and um, how do you even pronounce it we usually use a, a modern Icelandic pronunciation because it's not so far from the medieval Icelandic so but yeah it's fun can I ask you the basic language question that is, can you speak a little Old Norse for sure. us? Sure. Um, han var mikket madr. Han var konungar. Han for til Norvega. So he, he was a great man. He was a king. He traveled to, to Norway. <laughs> I imagine there's a lot of talk of greatness in this language. Yes, but, right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's kind of the interesting thing is about you know the the medieval Icelandic tradition is the reason you were actually considered to be a very important person if you were a poet because a king wanted a poet to record all of his greatness, and so you were only great if a poet wrote something about you, and mm. so. Um, uh, yes, it's always, uh, most of the sagas are about either great men or how do you trace this family's lineage back to the gods. And so you you wanted to have a, a good poet on your side who could write something really, really important about you. So yeah, he was a great man is in a lot of different sagas. It's a big line. <laughs> if only we still did that, it'd be a lot easier to find work. <laughs> are you looking to you scribe for somebody? Look. WRFL <laughs> can only pay the bills so long. <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense, we do that with with uh, political campaigns and and uh, mar- I mean, it's basically old school marketing. Mm. You know? It's that's what it was. It's a PR campaign. People instead, but instead of you know flashy things on the television, they're writing these uh, long um, poems to be read in courts. So there you go. Take the Nordic class mm-hmm. next semester. 
on your fast track to a marketing success. Yep. <laughs> I could be the Don Draper <laughs> of <Yes>. the Norse. <laughs> like, yes, there you go. Um, whew. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly sure where we steer it from here. Um, so, well, you said you said I talk, I teach a lot of different things, and. Um, and one of the things that I teach in that <laughs> MCL 100 class, see, I'm good with this kind of, I'm good with segues. Um, one of the things I teach in my MCL 100 class is uh, language and society, language and culture. And that is one of my fields of study is how language, both, uh, both how it links with our identity and how it represents our identity and how that can certain times be representative of race or um, or certain uh, groups that we align with. And that's what I looked into for my dissertation was uh, hip-hop language in Germany and how that aligned with the Turkish-German community. Okay. Well, let's talk about that because <laughs> hip-hop is always a fun topic, especially on college radio. Yeah. So, Turkish-German hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Can't say I'm familiar with it, even slightly. <laughs> uh, I'm not as hip as I should be to work well, here. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Most Americans don't listen to lang- to, to music in other languages, um, which is kind of, I kind of think, unique. I think most people around the world have listened to music in another language, and we just refuse. There's some, some <laughs> things that we listen to in Spanish, but for the most part, or like there's a Spanish word in there. <sighs> But um, for the most part, yeah, we, we, we don't know anything in another language. And um, But hip-hop itself um, has been an instrumental tool around the world for groups um, who, feel, who feel that they are, uh, that they don't have enough power in society especially um, to speak out against the structures that are keeping them down in that sense. So hip-hop has has been recognized all over the world as a a useful tool to speak out against social injustice and and to represent one's local community and one's local way of life, even if that may be unpopular or considered even offensive to those in power. When I was at UCLA... When I was I was started working on my dissertation, but I didn't really. My professor was in. Uh, my professors were in uh, main just normal linguistics and uh, philology, and they were kind of like I don't know what to do with this hip hop stuff. So I found a professor in anthropology who does uh, hip hop studies, uh, Sami Alim, and we had a hip hop studies working group, which was really cool. And that was I learned the most just from sitting around. And I had um, I had some different people working on French hip hop or Chicano Chicana studies, and basically there were all different forms of rebellion in a sense. And so that was that was something that I thought was really useful in trying to frame what I was hearing and what was going on in Germany was looking at hip hop as a form of social rebellion. And what I thought was really interesting is is what's called an ethnolect. And an ethnolect, so we have dialect, right? Um, and then if you get into linguistics, you learn all these other lects, like idiolect, your own type of language. Um, your sociolect, your language that reflects your, so- your social group, your social standing, whatever. And then um, 
there's this thing called an ethnolect, and that is a type of speech in which you indicate to your audience, either consciously or, or subconsciously, which ethnic ethnicity you align yourselves with. And so um, there, are, there are different kinds of ways of speaking that you you align yourselves with different communities. And so a big one that has been in the news for as long as I can remember is African-American vernacular English. And uh, different people have argued that this is uh, a, a language that is so different in or language. Again, you have to define what is the language. It's a lect. Uh, it's an ethnolect. It's a, it's a way of speaking that is um, very different from the standard English that is expected of school children, that it is uh, the standard English that is expected of school children is, has more in common with what most uh, middle to upper class white children speak at home. And so this, the reliance on standard and language in the schools, it privileges those, those kids because they're already used to the language. And so there's a, there's a famous court case um, where uh, William LaBeouf went up and said at that time they called it Ebonics, but then that got a negative connotation, so then they changed it. But the idea was that the, the structures are so different that a lot of students start school off disadvantaged because the language that they speak at home is not considered correct. Um, and it's considered bad, like you're making mistakes, even though it's a perfectly valid way of speaking, it's a perfectly normal, it has its own rules. Um, and so that's, that's, where, um, that's where I kind of got into sociolinguistics. I thought that was really, really interesting and, and how different languages indicate how languages are, are ways that we influence power. We, we have power over other people by saying the way you speak is not the way that you should speak. Like I'm giving moral judgment on your, your speaking ability and that you have to change the way you speak in order to do something else, like get a good grade in school or get a job or something like that. And so that then leads into, so what Turkish, German, and hip-hop, um, how that goes in is that hip-hop has been a way where people have been able to communicate a message in, and it's usually, hip-hop is usually linked to African-American vernacular English in the U.S. If you want to, I mean, a beautiful example, there's been a lot of talk about Iggy lately, you know, Iggy is what from like Australia or something, and the way she talks, she's adopting certain speech styles and speech patterns that are usually found in African American English. Hmm. And because why? Because she wants to be a hip hopper. So in her mind, this was already linked. Like, oh, if I want to be a hip hopper, I have to speak this way. And the same type of thing happened in Germany when the Turks are the largest migrant community in Germany, and they've been there since. Uh, there's been a a significant portion of the population since the 1960s has uh, been there. So you have second, third, fourth, fifth generation um, people growing up in Germany whose parents were originally Turkish, but they're still treated as a different class. They're called sometimes foreigners, even though they're fifth generation, right? And so there is a specific type of speaking that is associated with having a migrant background um, and this kind of way, this way of speaking has been called different things, stylized Turkish German. Derogatorily, it's been called Kanaksprach, because Kanaka is a derogatory term for a, a Turk in Germany. Um, 
And so they've been using these kinds of things. And so the, the interesting thing is then it becomes the official language of hip hop. And so you see Germans who grow up in, say, inner city, um, the, Ger- the Germans, they call them ghettos. Um, so they say, yeah, I, I grew up in the ghetto. And so this German will then use that same type of language. And so it, it has become, it was an ethnolect. Now it's both an ethnolect and a hip-hop-lect in that sense. It's a, it's a what we call a resistance vernacular. It's a language that is specifically used to resist the structures of society that say you should speak or you should do a certain thing. And so hip-hop as a resistance vernacular is, is a worldwide phenomenon. It's actually really interesting what people use, which languages people use when they're trying to do hip-hop and how, how the questions of authenticity uh, come up when you're like, oh, that person's not a real hip-hopper because they speak this standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. That was a very long-winded answer. But <laughs> it's, it's hard to do something when you work so many years on right. something. Um, and you write, you know, entire book on it and other things, and you're just like, how do I condense this down into five minutes? So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it gives us a lot to think about, which is what we strive for here on Office Hours. Awesome. Uh, we do need to take a short break, however. <laughs> so, uh, no, don't. That's great. <laughs> uh, we'll be back after this. All right. So, uh, what we just listened to, actually, was not Turkish-German hip-hop. <laughs> the interesting thing about that group, that's, that's uh, Die Fantastischen Vier. Uh, with their breakout hit, Dida. And they were the first uh, German rap group to land a record deal. The interesting thing about them was that they actually did rap in standard German. And they distanced themselves so much from the hip-hop scene that they called what they did Neue Deutsche Sprechgesang, which was New German Spoken Song. Because they really wanted to distance themselves from the... the, um, the hip hop scene and the the minority culture, which is, and they're still one of the the, the best selling groups uh, with the most record albums. Sony got them really early, and uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting idea. But they've yeah. they've come on, they have been uh, very outspoken on the record about how they are not hip hop, which is uh, I, I something I think is really interesting. So, is there an interesting divide in Germany then mm-hmm. with like things that are considered more? Um, mm-hmm. Minority, minority-based. Yeah, pop rap is considered. Uh, there's a band Crow, Cole, and they are they they talk. Oh, I'm pop rap. I'm not even you know or pap or prap. They keep making up weird <laughs> things like I'm not really you know. Uh, and then yeah, then there's a whole discussion on oh those aren't that's not real hip hop. Real hip hop now uh, tends to be have some gangster elements have some rap battles has to have a diss and there's you have to have a diss if you're a real hip hopper and there definitely is a lot of um, there is something if you are not minority that's okay but you uh, you have to have like usually you have to have somebody in your um in your video backing you up, kind of like how Eminem, you know, you, like you have to have somebody else to like validate your rapper status. It was actually interesting because uh, RZA from Wu Tang was actually in a Curse video from like 1995, and Curse was trying to get his authenticity, uh, you know. Really? With, yeah, and so you have you have in the background the the the, the is Ishleba for hip hop, which is RZA doing it. 
which is interesting. Like, that's him. Like, he raps first in English, and then he says, Schneeber for hip-hop. But it, and then you have, like, curse on top of it, and it's this, like, passing of the torch. And instead of a torch in the video, they pass a mixtape. They're like... Here's the oh like it was God. it was totally symbolic you know passing it on yeah it's coming from America here you go so Wu Tang is very very popular in Germany still so that's the and coolest Tupac. thing Tupac is yeah oh my God. <laughs> I gotta take a second to recover from that that is the coolest <laughs> thing I think I've heard since we've started doing this show I need to find this video oh yeah yeah mm. it's great you just Google Ishle. Yeah, just yeah. Yeah, I will do uh, that. I'll, I'll I will manage. <laughs> just Google Arz, um, RZA and Germany. And uh-huh. curse, curse is curse. It's C U R S E. Curse and RZA, and then that should that video should pop up. All right, I'll find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, a little bit earlier in the show, we were joined by our second guest today, Dr. Anast- Anastasia Kerwood. <laughs> I almost did it again. I apologize. Um, Dr. Kerwood. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Introduce yourself to our listeners. What are you doing? What are you researching? How are you feeling about the University <laughs> of Kentucky? Well, thanks for having me. Um, what I was doing this morning was lecturing in my introduction and uh, my uh, African American history course uh, about the origins of hip hop. Nice. So, yeah. so we do have a connection here. Uh, I'm teaching. Uh, history and African American and Africana Studies 261, which is a survey of black history since 1865. So we are at the stage, we are in the late 70s and early 80s, nice. and we were playing Grandmaster Flash <laughs> yep, okay. and the Sugar Hill Gang today. Yes. And a good number of my students knew the, all the words. So, um, so anyway, so, there, so there's a connection for you. But to introduce myself, I am a new faculty here. I just showed up a few months ago. I'm new faculty in the Department of History and in African American and Africana Studies. And I was hired as a 20th century African American women's and gender historian. So um, I've been teaching for about 10 years now, and um, I have written one book, which is about African Americans' marriages in the early 20th century, Hmm. so in the Jazz Age and in the Great Depression. And right now, my current project is a biography of the Congresswoman and presidential candidate, Shirley Chisholm, from Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, New York. So, um, so that's those are my my interests. And um, here on campus, I've I've just jumped in. Uh, I'm teaching that survey course, and I'm teaching an upper level the senior seminar in history. Uh, the class is, is the topic is race in America, and um, I really teach it as racism in America. Mm-hmm. And we, we talk about theory in the first half of the course, and now the students are writing. They're madly revising right now <laughs> as, as uh, they have to get their papers in by the end of the semester. So, um, so that's, that's what's going on right this moment. Going back a little bit to the Shirley Chisholm uh, research, can you give the listeners a little more um, general background on who uh, Shirley Chisholm is for those who don't know and a little bit of what where your research is taking you on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Shirley Chisholm was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1924. Um, Her parents were from Barbados. 
and uh, her, her, her signature style was fearlessness. So she was a politician, she was a little bit of a community activist, um, she was uh, very ambitious, um, but uh, she decided to go for the whole thing, and uh, once she won a seat in Congress representing Brooklyn, uh, then she, she decided to go ahead and run for, run for president in 1972. So the race, most people know about her from that presidential run. And if you transport yourself back to 1972, the, the general election was between Nixon and George McGovern, Nixon was to win by a very wide margin. <laughs> but, uh, but in 1972, this was the moment, this was the first election in which reforms in the Democratic Party dictated that um, certain people should be represented as delegates in the party and at the convention, and certain people's voices should be cultivated, like women and like black people. So, um, so she got to the convention, and she is, to this day, the only woman to bring, convention, to bring votes to the Democratic National Convention um, and to stay in the race, uh, to, to be active in the race at the Democratic National Convention. Um, we shall see in the next couple of years if that changes, but uh, right now she's the only one. And her idea in running for president, let's face it, she knew it was improbable that she would actually win. Uh, people said she was crazy at the time. Uh, mm. She was so ambitious that she was. She did take some risks. But really, her, her goal was to bring pressure to the Democratic National Convention in the form of delegates. So she would have delegates to bargain with, to bargain with George McGovern. Well, hey, I think, you know, you should, you should come out. McGovern wasn't that different from Chisholm philosophically, but she wanted him to explicitly endorse women's rights, uh, reproductive rights. Um, she wanted the Democratic uh, platform to do the same, um, to advocate for civil rights and human rights of people of all, uh, of all races and, uh, and ethnicities. So, um, so that was her idea, was to just bring delegates so she would have that kind of weight. She didn't actually succeed in keeping the, that big block together. She wound up with 150-odd delegates, she had hoped for many more, but what happened kind of at the convention is she was hoping to get some delegates from California because she was hoping to get some proportional representation. Uh, that, that bid failed, and so really she, she wound up without, uh, without that many delegates. But she's still a tremendously inspirational figure for people who know about her. A lot of people don't know about her. And as time goes on, fewer and fewer of my students know who she was. Um, but people who do know about her, their faces light up. They say, oh, Shirley Chisholm, I remember her. Or she inspired me to think that I could be something, do something. So, um, so she still has this tremendous symbolic influence. Um, the fact is uh, nobody knows much about her. Mm -hmm. Could the time possibly be um, good for her to have a little bit of a, a revival if... Um, the next presidential election does have another woman who would bring uh, votes in so that we can kind of reference back to Shirley Chisholm? Absolutely. Um, you know, I was, I and a few others were appalled when Obama was named the first black presidential candidate <laughs> uh, by several people. Many people really thought he was, and he was not. Of course, between Chisholm and, and Obama was Jesse Jackson, too, so there are 
couple of other people before before Obama. Same thing with women. Should Hillary get the nomination or uh, or be in the running for it again, then uh, she will not be the first woman to bring delegates to the Democratic National Convention. But it is absolutely timely. What's so interesting is how early Chisholm was. So she did this in 1972. So that's over 40 years ago. And then it took a long time for somebody to get back to where she was. And, and it, it, her experience tells us a lot about the political landscape in the 1970s. Right, coming out of the 60s and that early 70s period mm-hmm. where things were a little more radical. It seemed like things were possible. And, of course, uh, Chisholm entered Congress in 1960, well, 1969. She was sworn in around the same time that Richard Nixon was sworn in for his first term. Um, at the time, uh, many, well, they, they, they freely called themselves liberals. Back then it wasn't a dirty word. Um, <laughs> many liberals in, in, in Congress and in politics didn't quite understand how far out from under them the rug was, was going. Um, that uh, Nixon's election didn't seem like the beginning of the rise of the new right, that, it, that now in hindsight we know it was. Um, so people were still pushing, and um, 1972 wasn't so far into that. There was a lot of energy from activists. Feminist activists were a major core of Chisholm supporters. Also anti-war activists were another major core within her supporters. And these people were still um, protesting, still very active, still trying to, to push the Democratic Party to the left. They weren't even thinking about the Republican Party as a real force to, that it would that it that it was becoming, um, as the force that it was becoming. So, so anyway, Chisholm sort of went out there. She ran on a platform of economic, gender, racial um, equality, unabashedly. Said all sorts of things that sound terribly quaint to us. Like, did she really say that? But yes, she really <laughs> said that in 2014. She couldn't have said what she said. Uh, well, she could have, but people would think, "Wow, she's really crazy." Um, but well, her her uh, her ideas were not very different from George McGovern, who was the eventual eventual Democratic nominee. Um, times have really changed, and it's like the door closed behind her for a while. It took a long time for another black person, another woman, to to run seriously for for a Democratic Party nomination or any any nomination. Well, with that, I'm going to play a little clip of uh, Shirley Chisholm's speech. And then, to keep things hip-hop, <laughs> I'm also going to play a little um, Biz Marquis, okay. because he famously name-drops Shirley Chisholm in Nobody Beats the Biz, nice. which then has since kind of been respun by other artists um, after that, uh, because he... Biz says something to the effect of, Reagan might be president, but I voted for Shirley Chisholm. And then um, other people have done that since. And so in the 90s, people have said that about Clinton and then on into the Bush era as well. So you'll see it, um, a timeline of it, like happening in hip hop every once in a while, every like, you know, eight years or so, people will kind of reuse the biz line and do it again. So we'll get into that as well and be right back here on Office Hour. Once again, that was Nobody Beats the Biz, Biz Marquee, 
listening to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. Before we went into our little musical break, we've been talking with Dr. Kerwood here about Shirley Chisholm and her legacy in politics, I I think, is a safe word to say. Um, Over the break, uh, you had mentioned that she also had quite... I don't want to say radical because it makes it sound negative, but it was radical for the time. Uh, views on black feminism. And we got a bit of that in the speech that Brian played. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that and uh, just fill us in. So when she was in Congress and when she was on the presidential campaign trail, Chisholm was uh, uh, for a time the only person articulating black feminism from inside the government. And this makes her quite different from the other others in her generation of black feminists. Um, so she's writing along the same time as as um, people like uh, Audre Lorde and, uh, and, and Francis Beale, who wrote one of the famous manifestos of, of black feminism, uh, Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female. Um, Chisholm had read uh, some of these people. She invented, she called it twin jeopardy. And so she talked about the problems of being both both black and female uh, in that speech that you heard. And she gave a version of that speech multiple times uh, over all, uh, throughout the 1970s. Um, what's interesting is when she ran for president, um, she, she had this, this truly intersectional uh, ambition to bring people from all segments of the left of, of all liberals and all and people farther to the left together in her candidacy, um, it didn't work out because people didn't always talk to each other. So she had black power activists, she had civil rights activists, she had feminists of um, uh, uh, multiple races and, and ethnicities, classes. Um, uh, she had uh, um, a, a, a wide variety welfare rights activists. She had a really huge coalition of people that she was trying to pull together. And it didn't hold together. Um, she said she she worried about it so much she lost weight during the campaign. Um, it was really the thing that she regretted about her campaign was that that coalition never could hold could hold together. But like any black feminist, she saw all those issues issues as completely inextricable. Well, uh, Professor Bird. <laughs> yes. Um, can you also maybe tie back with, since we're like on a little bit of the hip-hop stuff earlier too, and um, the minority groups in Germany? Well, um, I can, I, I, actually something that, that comes up to me while, um, while we were talking uh, is uh, the interesting thing about hip-hop and its link to masculinity and how um, how a hypermasculine image is also usually a part of uh, projecting a, a hip hop image, and so how it's interesting because there there are female hip hoppers uh, who have been successful. However, they usually have to. It, it is this double. They're, they're if they're it, it's trying to be hip hop and female is also very very difficult because you're judged on both 
both sides. And if you don't have enough of a, a gangster persona, somebody doesn't really consider you to be hard enough to listen to. They might not be. But then if you're too over on one, then you're, you're, you, you know, what do you do as a female hip hopper? Do you also objectify women in your videos? Uh, which a lot of female hip hoppers have done. Um, to gain cred as a female hip hopper, and so the, the question of this uh, this identity of of being female, being minority, and then trying to gain power through a hip hop image and trying to gain resistance, um, gain resistance, gain power mm-hmm. through resistance, and trying to resist the structures. Uh, a lot of times, that's even more difficult for for female hip-hoppers than for male hip-hoppers uh, to figure out what their voice is and how did they gain authenticity. And so it's, it's actually been very, very interesting. It's my next thing that I really want to look into is, is um, because the ones that I've seen project, they go one way or the other. They, they, they tend to, to be really, really hard masculine images that they portray and they use this kind of hyper-masculine persona. Um, or they try and distance themselves from that scene completely, and they're very political, but they'll also use, say, standard German when they do, or in, in uh, English case, you know, they would, they would use standard English. And so it's, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting area to explore that I, I've yet to really delve into, but I've always been, kind of, I've always been struck by um, a lot of the research on ethnolect and hip-hop tends to focus on male hip hoppers and that's that's an interesting uh, and I I should add that historically women have been part of resistance movements throughout African-American history Mm -hmm. since the beginning of resistance which is the beginning of African-American history um, and have similarly dealt with questions um, of uh, feminine identity Mm -hmm. uh, womanhood um, what does it mean for my womanhood if I am an activist? Um, and there are multiple um, versions of what a race woman looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say race woman, that's an early 20th century term that people sometimes use. I am a race woman um, to mean that they were simultaneously um, conscious of their womanhood and enacting it on, on behalf of the race. But this goes this goes way back, and um, and just as there have been women hip hoppers and feminist hip hoppers mm-hmm. that um, we don't always remember, <laughs> there have been women uh, uh, members of the Black Freedom Struggle who we don't remember, mm-hmm. and and so um, so that's a really interesting parallel between our work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah, it's like. Wh- who do you remember? I mean, you don't you don't want to remember some people <laughs> because uh, you know they capitalize on on certain images, and uh, it is it is interesting how for women uh, in positions of resistance, uh, a lot of times they're not taken as seriously, and it is it is frustrating. I noticed myself actually when I was doing my research. That I kept coming back to male hip hoppers for my good examples, and then I was like, "Well, I really want to look into female hip hoppers and female uses of ethnolect." And so there are a bunch of different studies that study um, 
girl gangs and girl groups that use ethnolect. Um, uh, but it, again, it's it's also just not it's not as there there was a for example there's a there's a group that it's very silly it was a it was a group that was created through a reality show in Germany where they you know build your band build a band basically is what it was you know everybody <laughs> tries out for it all these girls are like they have to to show off their dancing abilities their singing abilities and there was one girl who rapped she didn't sing she rapped and that was ooh she rapped you know she was also Turkish, German. And in the interviews, she ended up being one of the finalists. And so they had this three-girl band called Monroe's. And um, it was very... It was very silly because the whole thing was completely construed. But again, a lot of the music industry is. We just don't know about it. Uh, <laughs> I have a friend who's a who's a uh, audio... Uh, he's a sound engineer, sound producer whatever, music producer, composer, and so I find out about all of these things, like, oh, really? That was completely construed. Oh, great. Um, But yeah, they, 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 when they would do interviews with the girls, this one girl who rapped, Zina, and she was always very protective of the others. She was always picking fights with people. She was very aggressive. She'd always talk about how I'm going to punch you in the face and, you know, and, and, F your mom and blah, blah, blah. She would always use this kind of very aggressive uh, language and body, body stance. And she's very, very pretty. But one of the, one of the interviews I remember so much is uh, one of the girls in the group got picked to do a spread for Maxim, Germany. And the interviewer asked uh, Senna why she wasn't picked. And she's like, ugh. I'm just, I must be too Kanakish for them. And again, the Kanaka is this derogatory term for Turks that's been reappropriated. And uh, I thought it said a lot for her that she was, she was using this term to mean, I speak too much of this ethnolect. I, uh, I am too aggressive. I, I'm too much, I'm too hip hop in that sense. And that that specifically negated my femininity in a male for a male consumption. You know that I would not be uh, able to be something that a man could find that attractive because I am too kanakish. And I thought that was a really inter, inter, interesting mm-hmm. intersection of race, gender, um, and hip hop in in this one little interview. And so that's that's really got me thinking about it. And that's something that I want to explore. Later, because it's a it's a complicated issue, and she was very conscious of it in that, and it just kind of came out. It was just like, no, this is my, I, I'm I'm too Kanakish. I can't, I I wouldn't be appropriate centerfold material. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of how carefully Shirley Chisholm constructed her own self presentation after she got into Congress. Um, she changed her look. We would call <laughs> we would call it. She changed her look. Uh, she started wearing very fashionable, colorful clothes, and she started wearing wigs um, because uh, it was easier to yes because because of hair because hair hair that's it um, and she constructed herself as very very feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, she pulled in a few young feminists because they realized they could be pretty and feminine and still be feminists. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Sylvia outspoken, and so she did. She had quite a few followers, but she had to be very careful with her self presentation. Um, and um, and she still she still caught plenty of flack. Um, she, uh, many of the black political leaders around the time she ran for president um, were uh, quite appalled by the fact that she just leapfrogged over them and declared herself as a candidate for the presidency. Black politicians were supposed to be working that out out among themselves, especially male black politicians. So it's always a fraught road. Unfortunately. That actually comes to the end of the hour. Yep. And we could have just kept on going for a long time. Absolutely. It was, <laughs> it was getting really, really interesting. Well, it was, it was always interesting, but it was even getting more interesting. Um, but we want to thank both of our wonderful guests, uh, Professor Bird, uh, Dr. Kerwood. Um, it has been a wonderful hour of um, very interesting and insightful conversation and insights. And I'm going to leave real quick with um, some music to take us out if I can successfully dial it up Um, tune in next week once again WRFL office hours here thanks to David Cole for running the show per usual as I just bumble behind the board every once in a while thanks again Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.